Memorabilia, a Daredevil Fic, Part 2 of the November series, written by Saturn Child, read by Dr. Fumbles McStupid, rating Mature, archive warnings, graphic depictions of violence, relationships, Frank Castle and Matt Murdock, Frank Castle, Matt Murdock, additional tags, Frat Week, Box, Freeform, Wumptober 2021, Amnesia, Disassociative Amnesia, Memory Loss, Head Injury, Post-Concussion Syndrome, Canon Typical Violence, Gun Violence, Pre-Slash, Pre-Relationship, Developing Relationship, Unreliable Narrator, Mild Gore, Hurt Comfort, Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, Recovery, Past Child Abuse, Implied Referenced Rape Slash Non-Con, Heavy Angst, Wump, Hallucinations, Hurt Matt Murdock, Emotionally Repressed Frank Castle, Alternate Universe Canon Divergence, Panic Attacks, Flashbacks, Protective Frank Castle, and Grief Slash Mourning. There are more warnings for this work, and they will be featured at the end of this work. You can find them at this timestamp, 12540. Summary This is weird, Frank grunts, waits for Red to say what he's got to say. I know this is all mine. I know it is, but I don't... I don't feel it. I don't remember it. I don't... He huffs in frustration, holds the box closer to his chest. Memorabilia. Objects that stir recollection, valued or collected for their association with a particular field, interest, or memory. Let absence be, altogether but briefly devastating. Devil. What if I want to go devil instead? Bow down to the madness that makes me. Morning. Frank's voice brings the images alive. Fire licks at wooden walls, grime-stained windows, bolted doors and two cots, lying on opposite sides of a cramped room. Oatmeal rips through a picture of scents, a dragging sweetness that feels dense when he inhales. Packed. It doesn't push the other smells away as much as it dominates them, mixes unpleasantly. Sitting up requires less effort than before. The smell of food isn't as nauseating, and neither is the pain. Controlled for the time being. Still, muscles shake, quake as if tearing away from his skeleton, trying to find other refuge than his skin. His head hangs off his neck like a heavy weight, putting pressure on his vertebrae and collarbones. Morning, he manages back. Frank sits down, but doesn't reach to give him the bowl of oatmeal. Neither does he say anything else. The routine is expected, and somewhat of a comfort. He sighs softly. I'm Matt. You're Frank. We're in your cabin. It's, uh, Sunday? November. Frank's calloused, thick palms find his, steadies his right hand before handing him the hot oatmeal. Didn't call me Fred this time, at least. He grumbles under his breath, and Matt isn't surprised at the taste of coffee that comes from his lips and tongue, released into the air, settles back against the headboard, and cradles the warm bowl close, the cold morning dew dripping by the window, a sonorous facsimile of a heartbeat, slow and almost in tandem with Frank's. Maybe I thought you looked like a Fred. Frank shakes his head with a huff, mumbles a, right, under his breath before, eat. 
Matt does. The ringing in his ear, an untraceable vibration that fixates over his right eardrum, poking it with needles. It was usually worse at night. Are you going to tell me anything today? If Matthew is like a sponge, absorbing everything and anything around him at all times until he's spilling over, Frank is a rock and concrete, impenetrable, undisturbed, insusceptible. He gives nothing away, as if he kept the world at bay, completely unapproachable at times. Embers and fire burn the world bright, but Frank Castle was a blotch of ink dripping in the middle of his senses, a stain that stuck. The first heartbeat he looked for when he woke up. The only heartbeat he remembered properly. Castle shrugs, like he had all the days before. Have nothing to say. Lie. It's barely there, not exactly a skip. His pulse speeds for not much more than a second, and then settles back down. Red. Matt. Matt! His name is Matt. Takes another sip of his oatmeal, slowly processing the taste of the food. The lingering taste of the pan it was prepared in. The old spoon that mixed it. He had time, the last few days, to get himself together, if only just. Stick's teachings, in return, are a whispered chant in his head whenever he interacts with the strange man. So far, Frank looks like an ally. That could change, and Matt tries to create contingencies. Where will he run? Where exactly are the traps he heard the night before? How will he survive if he doesn't know? Well, most of everything about his own life. And about yourself? He asks instead, sighing into another spoonful of oatmeal. You're military, right? Maybe former. Tilts his head sharply to one side, listens to the unshakable, relentless heartbeat painting the room red and black. You have an arrow scar on your shoulder. Are you with the chaste? Marines, what the hell is the chaste? Matt's lips pressed together. He thought he had mentioned them before. He had, hadn't he? Either Frank is an ally, or he's not, and if he's not... Well, there's a good chance he'd already know what the chaste is. It's the only answer Matt can find that makes sense. That's how he got hurt, working with Stick and the others. But the Marine's heartbeat doesn't skip, nor does it speed up in that characteristic way. Fred scoffs, probably at his silence. Yeah? But he needs to be sure. Are you with the hand? I'm what? He ignores his voice to listen hard to the beating, living thing hiding beneath marred scars and skin tissue, breastbone and ribs. Matt breathes a little more easily, if only for a little bit. Because if Frank isn't either of them, then how did he find him? How did he know him? How did he know, if partially, about Matt's senses and skills? None of it made any sense. Frustration rises and swells like a furious ocean, Tidal waves rising and rising in height until they reach the skyline. How do you know me? Tell you what, Red. He drops his empty bowl on the fold-out table. The loud rattle of spoon against porcelain makes him flinch. You're a pain in the ass of the highest degree. He tilts his head, listens closely. But still, I'm here. Matt begins carefully. Do you want something from me? Frank shrugs, a heavy exhale getting lost in the distance between them and so do all of its meanings. Want you to show up and eat? Not working. Not again. Do I have no one else to get back to? The bigger man's heartbeat throbs scarily faster before it's forced back down to a resting rhythm. Frank watches him. Not for now. And it's not a lie. Not one Matt can detect, anyway. 
and if there's one thing he learned about Frank since he woke up in the cabin with his head in bandages, is that he keeps to his promises, the good and the bad. So Matt settles, for there isn't much else he can do, and the energy is already beginning to seep right out of him. He finishes the small bowl of food and takes his medicine, tries to unlock all his tense muscles bunching under his skin, and allows Stick's voice to chant through his head, Mind controls the body, body controls our enemies. Trustworthy or not, Frank is clearly not willing to let him go. If Stick's alive, certainly he'll find Matt. Trees may offer cover and a sighted perspective, but doesn't mean anything for blind people like them. And even if Frank doesn't know, Matt is likely working for Stick in the chase. They had to fight the war, after all, and why else would he get in trouble? Come on, Maddie, get to work, Dad tells him. Get to work. He has to get back to his feet. He will. But for now, his head throbs painfully like his brain is threatening to burst out of his skull, and the oatmeal plays loops around his stomach. Frank gives him a bucket when he throws up. The first time Matthew notices something is wrong is when he's sitting in the bathroom, taking a sponge bath. Frank helps him with the basics before leaving him to the little privacy he has, sitting beside the half-closed door. He's glad for the shower curtains. Even a few paces away, Frank's heartbeat illuminates the whole cramped room with bright spots of sound, the vibrations traveling like tendrils underneath the floorboards and deep into the earth underneath. Echoed strangely against the tiles, but loud enough that finding the offered hygiene products wasn't a hardship, even with his building migraine. It starts as a feeling, a certainty that he's not alone, that he quickly abandons. Frank is on the other side of the door, and his senses are haywire, sensitive to every input his fatigued brain can't process properly, beyond threat and safe. He leans back, careful of the plastic wrapping around his left thigh, and remembering Frank's orders not to get his hair wet. It quickly morphs to unease. It begins like a concept and then evolves, swells and thickens into something closer to dread, into his heart going faster, his breathing pattern changing, choppy inhales and shallow exhales. He isn't sure what it is at first. The puzzle pieces are scrambled, and he's too exhausted to put them together properly. There's a presence that doesn't make sense, not corporal enough that he can get a read on it with his senses. But he knows it's there, even if the sound waves from their heartbeat and breathing betrayed nothing. Do you reckon Stick would be disappointed? He startles badly enough that the soap slips from his hand and slides across the floor towards the drain. Aghast and more than a little alarmed, he abandons the crawling sensation across his skin as the soap suds slide across the expanse of his body to try and make sense of the sound. It feels like a thought, a thought that came too loud, enough that it feels like it was outside of his body, perched right by his right ear. His hands close on the side of the empty tub, nails digging and slipping at the humid, cold porcelain. Who? But there's no heartbeat, no sound beyond the voice. Until there is. Its heartbeat mimics his own, sounds exactly the same in its cadence. But the thing, whatever it is, doesn't carry a smell or heat like all living things do. It's almost apart from the world on fire, a tear on the fabric of reality he put together with his senses. Something that looks like a man, except for the thick skin and the small horns protruding from its smooth head. You're trusting him. Castle will kill you the moment he has the chance. It's what he does. 
The thing shrugs, a smile cutting through its alien face. You're not here, he whispers, as if the simple statement would rip the thing apart, destroy it, send it away. You keep your enemies close to watch them, take advantage of them, not so they can captivate you. I'm hallucinating, he whispers again, nails now digging into his knees. And when did he move his hands? When did he do that? There's a flicker of time between one second and the other that is missing. Like all the days previous to waking up in Frank's bed and crawling to this place. You're not real. <laughs> real enough to know you're easy prey. The demon-like hallucination smiles big at him. What are you going to do about that? The devil, he thinks. This is the devil. Did you miss me already, Matt? Red takes his sweet time in the tub. He should have been done with it long ago, and Frank, well, he should have done it himself. He doesn't doubt for a second Red could be already plotting some half-assed escape plan and stalling for time in the bathroom. He knocks out of courtesy more than to give him privacy. He'd seen enough of Red in all states of undress the first three days he had been there. Red? No response. Frank doesn't wait any more than that. In his head, he runs through the list once again. Bleeding from nose, ears or eyes, brain hemorrhage, paralysis, seizure, swelling, fever, delirium, pus, infection. Runs over it again so it doesn't fade from his memory. Not as pristine as he'd like it to be. Although he'd never got to Red's situation either. Names and meanings escape him sometimes is all. Red looks physically well when Frank walks through the door. Combat boots squeaking against the tiles. He squints at him, at his nose, eyes, ear, clean, his bandages, dry, his plastic-wrapped wounds, pink and healthy. He checks the place out of habit, looking for incongruities hiding between fresh, sterilized towels and semi-transparent shower curtains. Red? He calls out again, but the kid doesn't answer, and Frank can't say he's exactly surprised. Had happened a few times already, the little shutdowns which is why he's surprised when Red speaks. Is there... The redhead swallows, fingernails digging into his knees, his left leg stretched across the empty tub to accommodate the pain of the gunshot wound. Is there anyone else here? Just us, Red. And he did a perimeter check minutes ago. His eyebrows furrow down to meet his eyes, and Red twitches, wonders if he senses the movement somehow. Yeah, your sense is going a bit haywire? Matt startles all of a sudden, one hand closing a tight fist around his knee, and the other, the right one, spasming as it tried to do the same. Can you take me outside, please? Voice comes as the afterthought of a whisper, barely there at all, but it echoes around the cramped space and makes its path towards Frank's eardrums. He sighs sharply, but doesn't mention anything else. Mechanically helps Red out of the bathtub and into the towels grabbing the folded clothes Frank had separated for him to use, slightly too big in places. Doesn't need the asshole's fancy senses to know something's up, but he won't ask for now, and he's quite sure Red won't volunteer the information either. Wiped out brain or not. The thought sits heavy in his stomach, a weight that he feels physically when he moves to the kitchen. If the memory loss is caused by brain damage, Kurt says the likelihood of Red ever regaining them is extremely small especially considering the type of first care he received. There are other options to what was messing up his head, but for now, there was simply no way to tell. You remember anything else? He asks from there, 
fetching the wheeling chair he had stolen from the Costa's medical facility the week before. The lieutenant doesn't give Matthew time to deliberate, helping him up into the chair, careful of his injured head, belly, and leg. He isn't surprised when, I don't need that. I didn't ask. Sit down. I'm perfectly capable of, but you won't. He cuts off quickly, adjusting the arm support and adjusting the wheel lock before wheeling Murdoch towards the front door. Not yet, at least. Murdoch twitches, impatience making lines like riverbanks form around his youthful face, but chooses wisely not to start a discussion. He's been picking his fights since he realized Frank was just as stubborn as him. He repeats his question and watches Red Sigh raise a condensation fog in the air, following its swirls through the cold morning air. Just bits and pieces, Murdoch eventually answers, licking his lips. It comes and goes. Frank grunts in response and doesn't press the matter, but he does help the redhead sit on the steps like a few nights before. To fight. For the war. Shit. Of all the fucked up things. He shakes his head to himself, not enough of a movement that drags attention from Red, who seems content in tilting his head back towards the cloudy sky above the high trees. Won't think about all he's learned, because they're not part of the mission right now. He'll get the kid better, get him back to his life, maybe go to the orphanage, ask some questions, start digging. But until then, he sits on the cabin steps with the devil of hell's kitchen by his side, hugging his knees against the coming cold. Stick taught me knives. Father Lantum and the... the nuns called the cops. I got into middle school. Had a crush on Ian from history class. Dad hates Miss Hernandez's bakery's apple pie. The messy retelling doesn't faze him, but brings a flashback of their own. His head had processed information similarly back then. The scar of the bullet just barely closed. His brain had latched to their laughter, but he couldn't remember if the plates made it to the sink. He remembers Lisa's little voice begging him to read her favorite book. Please, Daddy, please! But he couldn't for the life of him remember the clothes Frankie wore that day. Maria's voice played in a loop of, Hey, sleepyhead. But he can't remember how she sounded when she said his name with that fondly exasperated look. Tomorrow, baby. I'll read it to you tomorrow, I promise. My wife, she, uh... He swallows the clotted knots of uncertainty in his throat and blinks against the moisture collecting around his eyelids. She used to try some fancy dessert recipes from time to time. He laughs suddenly and brightly, Remembers her pout when her chocolate muffins ended up burned for the third time that month, and her strawberry cheesecake went wrong in liquid. Red looks surprised at him, and the anonymity is somehow... comforting. He doesn't remember the chaos Frank unleashed in the city, doesn't remember the headlines and the trial, and much less how Frank bounced a bullet off his helmet years ago. They would have never sat like this, talked like this, if Red hadn't been brained in that warehouse a little over a week before. She was a good cook, but her desserts were bad, man. She was real terrible at it. Red chuckles softly, and deja vu creeps over his skin like a thousand ants. It's almost a do-over of that night in the graveyard. The kids tried to be nice, you know. They'd put on this face, all white-eyed like it was the most delicious thing they'd ever eaten. Lisa, my baby girl, she was good, Red. Sometimes she fooled even me, but Frankie, my son, he was horrible at it. You could see it all over his face. He used to say that he wanted to be a chef when he grew up. Murdoch's eyebrows go up and Frank scoffs. I know, right? 
He'd say he wanted to be like the TV shows. Lisa was a good sister. She'd taste every crazy concoction Frankie came up with, even mango pancakes once, which made her sick, and she wouldn't let Frank or Maria tell Junior about it. She'd always make some ridiculously funny accents when she was playing the food taster, wearing those little bracelets she used to make with her best friend. What was her name? Natalie? Frank tries to chuckle at the memory, but it comes out a rasp of breath, his lungs tearing right off of him. She had been wearing one of those, one of the bracelets written Lisa in bold orange letters. It was her favorite color, since she was about the height of Frank's knee. Remember seeing it stained deep red when he cradled her in his lap. Red's voice brings him back to the porch, away from the park and Lisa. What happened? Scary how intuitive the kid was. Maybe it had something to do with his senses, but Frank isn't that sure. He hadn't thought much of him at first back then. Thought he was impulsive, combustive and too naive. And then he met him again, wearing crisp but cheap suits and red shades, and saw that spark of smart he tried to hide. Frank doesn't doubt that. Should he have been more present in the trial, he'd probably have managed to get the not guilty verdict, somehow. Frank's silence must be answer enough, for Red soon turns his face away in respect. Maybe he senses it somehow, the thick knot tightening in Frank's throat the stinging at the corner of his eyes, and a moisture he wasn't sure he could blame on the wind. I wanted to be a lawyer, Murdoch offers. His head twitches to the side subtly before coming back to the conversation. Frank catches himself, wondering just how far those ears of his went. When I was a kid, he finishes softly, extending his injured leg with a certain amount of effort before all air left his lungs in a rush. Ain't sure if it's Frank Jr.'s ghost hanging over them close enough that Frank swears he could smell the god-awful shampoo he liked, only because it came with Captain America's face plastered on it, but actually had a terrible scent. Maybe it's cause Red is sitting there with barely any memories left in that fucked-up head of his, and remembering being a kid, dreaming about being a lawyer, not knowing he made it, against a whole shit-ton of odds. You are, he blurts out. Red turns to him, his whole body still, eyes wide. What? You're a lawyer. Frank shrugs at the sudden rush of breath that leaves Red, the confusion turning into awe. Frank resists the urge to look away from the precious turn of his lips. Good one, too. One you want to be. A breathy chuckle graces his ears, and Frank finally turns away, a small smile on his face mirroring Red's lips. He waits for questions he's sure Red made to himself a thousand times the last few days. Why is he not at a hospital? Where are his friends? Why didn't they come looking? Why, why, why? But Murdoch doesn't. Just holds his own knees closer with that dreamy little smile upturning his lips, pulling a long, scabbed-over cut by his chin. Frank helps him inside when the exhaustion kicks in once again and leads him to the cot. Where did you go? An angry voice close to his face. I can't do this alone! I can't take another step! Soft, long hands and arms circling his shoulders. Was it all a lie? Salt and moisture in the air. Tears. The scent of his own blood. You're just one bad day away. Chains pressing him down. Hands on his chin. Where did you go, Matt? He wakes up with the whisper, a burn-bright hot spot of pain in his chest. Not one from any voice that he can remember, but familiar all the same. Familiar enough that something clogs his throat chokes up his airways. 
Every attempt at an inhale stops just short of completely cutting off his oxygen. The burn in his chest spreads. Matt blinks away the tears in his eyes. Where did it come from? Tries to orient himself in the space he's in. Where? He didn't know these sheets. Didn't recognize these walls. These... The smell. He recognizes it. Antiseptic. Coffee. Gunpowder. The fabric doesn't feel as odd once he runs his hands through it. It's another one, but not unfamiliar. Frank changed the sheets again. His heart pounds faster against his chest. Panic bruised like a tight, boiling hot coil in his chest. He suddenly feels unsafe inside the room. The cabin walls, the body of trees and earth surrounding them from all sides. There's something he has to do, somewhere he needs to be, and Matt can't for the life of him figure out what or where. A shuddery breath leaves through his parted, parched lips. Feels the skin of his forearms cool off where it spills, sharp like a whirlwind for his oversensitive sense of touch. Where did you go indeed? The intruder, as Matt had taken to calling him, asked softly. His presence is accompanied by an excruciating ache that manifests itself like a weight more than the agony it really is, when it spreads at the edges of his fracture, following the lines connected by wire. He doesn't need to concentrate to hear bone grind against metal. You're not in Hell's Kitchen, but that's about as far as you know. He doesn't answer. If he ignores him, maybe. Oh, well now, that's just desperate. His teeth grind together. The pull of muscle and jaw sharpens the pain, tendrils of it reaching out to take over the whole right side of his head. Matt wonders if this is what losing your mind feels like. A steady, perfectly natural feel of circling down the drain. Almost like it's supposed to happen. Almost like he deserves it, maybe. I suppose you do, but I might be biased. The intruder's voice is oddly detached from where Matt senses its surreal body. The weird texture of its skin, almost like leather. The protruding horns in his skull. As for him, his own skull felt the same. Broken bone, oddly loose, when he follows the line of sutures coming from his temple to an inch past the top of his ear. The creature shifts, his body something like red smoke. Who am I again? The devil. He ought to be. Grandmother did always say Murdoch boys had the devil in them. How ironic that this is how Matt remembers this, with a hallucination probing at the soft, damaged parts of his brain. The thing laughs. The sound doesn't rebound, doesn't act like echolocation, like a real one usually would for his hearing. At the proof of it, of the unreality, and trapped in the room with it, Matt attempts burrowing further into the sheets, nose dipping into the fabric and looking for something real. Coffee, gunpowder, antiseptic, soap, skin, musk. Are you trying to hide from me? Do you reckon it'll help? No, it can't hurt to try. The intruder shifts, a smoke trail left behind, the impression of lips close to his ear. I'm in your head. Then get out of it! Matt misses hours before, when it was only a dripping sound and an uncommon stench. One he became aware of when Frank said he wasn't smelling anything. He thought perhaps it came from the forest, but further search led to nowhere. The smell didn't come from anywhere physical, neither did the sound. It echoed just at the shell of his right ear. Frank's heartbeat had betrayed slight unease, and, for his sake, Matt mentioned something about being tired and had retired to his cot. That wouldn't be any fun. Shut up! The dripping sound comes back, just around the shell of his ear. Works like an echo of the intruder's words. His skin the texture of leather and spandex and something inhuman, almost alive. 
He sits up suddenly, muscles pulling abruptly under his skin, tightening worryingly at his shoulders where they bunch up to cover his ears. He cowers to a corner, knees to his chest, attempts to find Frank's pulse nearby, eyes shut tight together as to ignore the very real breathing that he can feel against his cheek, a predator's maw ready to attack. No matter how much he tries to work through the sounds, he's hindered in his efforts, his own heartbeat too loud to properly allow him to focus, hammering and vibrating his eardrums. He only realizes he's digging his fingernails into his knees when something wet and warm touches the palm of his hand. What was that song? The one Dad liked? Go away. He wants to say. Needs to say it. Why can't he say it? His ability to speak was locked up somewhere deep, and Matt couldn't reach it. Couldn't find it, no matter how much he tried or how much the muscles of his neck worked against the knot tying up his throat. When I was fast asleep, she threw her arms around my neck. He clutches at his ears, presses his back against the corner of the bed, eyes shut together, but it doesn't muffle the intruder's voice. Neither does it stop him from singing. Strength leaves him. Matthew lets his arms fall to his sides, eyes vacant and searching the opposite wall. And then began to weep. S stop! His voice is stubborn. It struggles to fully leave him, sinks its nails in his tongue and refuses to be let out. S stop! Stop! It's wrong. He isn't sure what, but it's wrong. Dad never liked that song. Dad liked weird country music and rock. It's wrong. It's all wrong! And he needed to stop. She wept, she cried, she tore her hair. Ah, me, what could I do? Hands come up to his ears again, and Red clamps them down hard, until the pressure becomes a palpable sound, bursting his eardrum. The brake protests. He thinks he hears something snap. So all night long, I held her in my arms. The devil's voice echoes around the empty room, undisturbed. Just to keep her from the foggy, foggy dew. It's all right, kid. His head hurts. Eyes sting when he attempts opening them. I just need to clean it, yeah? You popped a stitch. It's bleeding a little. His head hurts. Make it stop, please! Wanna tell me what happened? He isn't sure. He doesn't know. Someone was here. He thinks he whispers. Frank, someone was here. Frank's steady hands stop. Matthew blinks through the fog. The hands return. Frank, I need to go back. I need to go back. He shakes his head, pushes his shoulders against the bed again. Matt hadn't realized he was trying to sit. Just rest, Red. Frank sighs. Coffee, mint, toothpaste, eggs, and bacon mix in the air above him. Don't reckon you'll be remembering this when you wake up anyway. He doesn't. Box. Yet I was wound up. I tick. I exist. I am poised. Eighteen inches over the black rivets. You are reading. I am in your place. I am shut. In a bone box and trying to fasten myself on the white paper. By day ten it's clear something is going on with Murdoch. He wouldn't know for sure since Red never speaks of it. Never speaks much of anything that really matters, to be truthful. Still a master in the art of misdirection, even if you probably can't remember shit about his life as a lawyer. Frank is a sniper. 
Waiting is in his nature, as much as Kurt likes to point out he has, as he so calls it, a modern disease and craves for instant gratification or some bullshit. When the time is right, he'll ask and he'll aim just right. But for now, he has other things to worry about. If what Kurt had said through the phone was true, each day that passed, there was less chance Red's amnesia was from a brain injury. The odds were, much of it was psychological. Disassociative amnesia, Kurt called it. Less to do with Red's injury, and much more with what happened before it. Frank frowns, eyes locked to his food before he averts his gaze to Red once more. The amnesia might have nothing to do with the hit he took to the head, but everything else certainly did. Red slept up to twelve hours most days, and couldn't seem to sleep at all on others, no matter how exhausted he was. It had come to a point where he'd shut down, get into that detached, disassociating state he had been in his first few days in the cabin. The bruise under his eyes from the broken capillaries were getting better. Kurt told him it was normal, so Frank hadn't worried too much, though they certainly didn't improve his appearance. He does it again, twitches his head and loses focus on his food arms settling down against the wood, hands almost fully covered by the long sleeves of Frank's borrowed shirt. Had been doing that a lot lately, wandering away into his head, getting lost in his surroundings. Hey. The crackle of gravel in his deep tone is enough to snap right out of it. The flinch doesn't go unnoticed. What's going on? Something with his ears, maybe? Frank was pretty sure at some point they had used a flashbang grenade had found a canister abandoned at the warehouse entrance and track marks from someone being dragged. Red swallows, makes an attempt to go back to his food, only to yield. Nothing, comes the predictable response. Yeah, I don't think so. He slants his head to the side, gets to watch Red's uncomfortable expression morphing and changing. Murdoch might have gotten better from looking like death warmed over, but he was still pale. He still had bandages around his head, thigh, torso bruises all over. Not for the first time, he wonders just how exactly does he work. Couldn't help but notice his sharp senses the last time they saw each other, on that rooftop. He had seen him nod to something he said yards away. Wonders just how those senses of his are working now that his skull is broken, fracture extending from above his ear to a few inches past it. Frank reaches behind him, onto the makeshift counter, grabs the bowl of apple slices. Eat it! Murdoch blinks, his whole body on pause. I. He smacks his lips softly, as if trying to get rid of a taste he couldn't make much sense of. Frank squints at him. Yes. Compliance with Red was different, Frank came to realize soon enough. He was either buying himself time for something, or he was closing off, hiding back inside his shell. Distinguishing the two was easy enough. Red was nothing if not an open book at the best of times. Like the past ten days, Frank prods. Remember anything today? Murdoch shakes his head slowly, eyes roaming from the empty plate to the bowl beside him, as if looking for stains or cracks in the porcelain. He eats the slice of apple with care, too much too quick, and his headache worsens sometimes. Just words. Words? Lips twist downward. He doesn't look too comfortable sharing it. Yeah. He abandons the half-eaten slice on his plate, somehow managing to avoid the dirty parts. People saying stuff. Sentences. But I couldn't remember. Anything in specific? Murdoch stops moving, shakes his head. Frank lets it go, but he isn't convinced for a second. He sits by the table and cleans his guns, 
and goes over the plan in his head for the fifth time. Frank's been stewing over this long enough. It's a bad idea, and he knew it, and knew it well. Taking Red back to the city with the way things were now, well, there were a thousand different ways things could escalate and go to shit real quick, and he wasn't too happy about the odds either. If they were out there, even if Red remembered his training, or some part of it, he was underweight, slightly anemic, and injured. They go to the city and Red's an immediate liability. He'll have to look out for him. On the other hand, seeing Red flicker between moments of clarity and haze gets him in some deep, fucked-up part that messes with Frank's head. Head replays over and over again the sight of him reaching out a hand. Too late, he had said. Please. Things are starting to get complicated. At the beginning, it was simple. Take Red in, get him someplace safe to rest, get him back to his life. But then he wakes up with his brain scrambled, and what in the world does he do with that? How can he get him back to his life if Red has no goddamn idea what that means? Frank should be damn well past caring. Should throw Red, clueless fucking Red, in the middle of the city with all the wolves he pissed off that are now clamoring for his blood. Envisions going through what Red would do if the situation was different. If it was Frank with his head messed up and a whole city bellowing to take a pound of his flesh. Tells himself Red would do the same thing. Just throw him to the wolves. But that's bullshit. Not a goddamn bone in Matt Murdock's body was capable of leaving a man behind to bleed out. Not even a piece of shit like Frank. So he checks his supplies before going to Murdock with the idea. Guns, knives, burner. Backup plans. Safe houses he has nearby. Places he can lay low if they can't manage the ride back to the cabin. The city wasn't a safe place for the devil, and much less Matt Murdock. Someone out there knows the two are one and the same, and Frank had a good fucking guess as to who. Only a matter of time before Frank puts him down. He's not your responsibility. Kurt's voice nags at him. Take me home, Murdock says instead. Curtis asked who he was when even Red couldn't answer that himself. And well, shit. Who wasn't the approximate question, was it? What Kurt had wanted to ask, and Frank knows this. Knows this with the certainty he knows that Murdoch will be back on his feet. No question about it. Was who Murdoch was to him. Red was a sanctimonious pain in the ass, that's who. A holier-than-thou prick with a savior complex. A good guy. And Frank had been too late. And so had Red. And they were both paying for that now. Because Frank knows better than to expect everything will go as planned, he prepares a bag with some bare necessities. A whole bunch of first aid and changes for Red's dressings. Kid shouldn't be moving so soon, not after getting his head sewn back together in a mob doctor's table, but as good as Frank could be at waiting. It wasn't his favorite tactical approach, and neither was Red. Frank needed him out there, doing his ninja shit. Murdoch was one step away from getting cabin fever, and whatever was going on with his ears that he wouldn't tell Frank about. Red may sleep a lot, but God knows he doesn't do much resting. Frank reckons he has flashbacks, but Murdoch is rarely coherent enough when he wakes up. And the times that he is, he doesn't seem to understand anything at all. That's why, when he finishes packing to find Matthew burrowed into the sheets with a peaceful, restful expression softening his features, Frank doesn't wake him. He busies himself about the place for a while until there's no need to check traps or supplies, and only then does he take a seat by the cot. Red looks different since he got here. Even with the flashbacks, the constant headaches, and the effects of the concussion, there's a weight missing from him. He still has that soldier-like posture of his, spine straight, shoulders back, but there's something, an absence Frank can't pinpoint. 
It's in the softness of his eyebrows when he sleeps, and his easy-going talk when he's not distracted with his messed-up head. Maybe it's the memories he doesn't have. Maybe. It takes an hour for Red to finally shift, hands twitching away from the cotton sheets tangled around his waist. Frank notices the rashes all over his forearms, bright red where they had been pressed against the fabric. Hey, Red. A soft groan answers him. Red scratches at his forearm. Who am I? For some reason, Murdoch flinches at the question, muscles tensing before he lets go. Frank's eyes narrow at his figure. Red takes a deep, shuddering breath. You're Frank. I'm Matt. It's Monday, November. Frank stares at him some more, waits for an answer to pop out of somewhere, a reason for the slightly frenetic twitch of his fingers. Sighs when none comes. It's the 21st. Murdoch nods before attempting to sit up. He still sways when he does something strenuous. Walks a few steps too many. Climbs up three steps from the porch to the cabin store. And sometimes, when he wakes up. But if Kurt is right and Murdoch's amnesia is psychological, triggers could help him fill the blank spots. The faster he gets Red remembering, the faster he is out of there, and Frank could go back to hunting down scumbags. Put those on. Red tilts his head the second the bundle of clothes leaves Frank's grasp, catches it neatly with his right one. The muscles there had improved just enough that Red didn't let things fall all the time now. Kurt had left him some hand grip strengtheners the last time he had been there, when Frank had thought they'd have to shove Red back into the van. As luck would have it, the seizures had mostly been due to dehydration and shock. Murdoch's fingers explore the items. Thick thermal pants. Jeans. A heavy sweater and a parka. Maybe it wasn't cold enough for the pants, but Red had lost a few pounds and had gone from fit to too damn skinny, and he shivered a whole fucking lot when night fell. He curses under his breath and throws in some winter socks and gloves. Peruses for an old pair of boots that came with the place. A tight fit, but better than Frank's oversized ones. Where are we going? He turns his head away from the redhead. He'd seen Murdoch in various stages of vulnerability in the last week. But when he woke up slurring his words and curling his tongue loosely and softly around his vowels, it was just different. Got the twist in his chest to settle at the same time it only knotted up more painfully. Reminds him too much of his kids, waking up with soft little smiles. Are we going to the park, Daddy? Rubs at the back of his head, palm pressing into the scar. Red inclined softly towards the sound, a bit more alert. Chin cocked up. Iris is creeping towards the upper left corners, considering. Your place. Red frowns before freezing altogether. There won't be anyone in there, right? Disquiet fingers pick at the fabric, flinching away from it before pressing his fingers harder together. Goddamn martyr. I won't remember them. Frank pulls the cotton sheets away from him, throws them on the floor by the growing heap of dirty laundry he has to take care of. Red's relentless, though finds a way to twist his own fingers into pretzels, picking at the skin between each one. Don't think so. But then again, what does he know? Midland Circle collapses. Red was supposed to be dead. Reports came about a man in a black mask saving a man and attacking people related to Fisk. There's a riot in prison. Matt Murdock becomes a wanted man. And then he calls the very same day. That's what your fancy hearing is for, right? Murdoch nods gingerly, gets up quietly, and sways only once before dragging himself to the bathroom to change. 
He comes back dressed and already looking drained, expression unguarded, soft. Frank looks away. You can sleep in the car. Come on. Red does. He's dead to the world for two hours. Hell's Kitchen doesn't look any different from the last time Frank had been there. He had half expected it to be, that its walls would be somehow marked with the devil's absence. If he's honest with himself, Frank had half expected it to look like the aftermath of an apocalypse. Stupid. Maybe it's because he can't picture the kitchen without its guardian devil. Maybe it's because it felt like the world had changed, somehow, not much more than a week ago. Something had shattered, and yet the place remained intact. Frank shakes his head and spares a glance at the man sleeping in the passenger seat, chin to his chest, soft clouds of breath getting puffed by his nose. He looks uncomfortable. He waits for the next light to gently squeeze a fingertip under his chin, help him find a better angle to rest his head, manages to lean it against the window, and Red expresses his content, exhaling soft, warm air against Frank's fingertips, falling back asleep quickly. Making sure he wasn't resting over the injury, the place where bone was held together feebly by iron, sutures, and skin. Frank avoids any bumps in the streets while driving, eyes scanning other cars and rooftops. He doesn't think the man on the stairs necessarily knew who Red was, but his boss did. He thinks he sees something, rooftop over an auto repair shop, not too far from them, a blur of black and red. It's gone before he can register its shape and speed, but he keeps an eye on all the rooftops after that. It doesn't show up again, but Frank files it away as something to consider afterwards. Murdoch's building is an old brick walk-up, not as much of a shithole as Frank's safe houses in Manhattan, but a shithole nonetheless. Red wakes up the moment they pull over a street away, head twitching sideways. He looks more alert than he had back in the cabin, taking in the city, the traffic, the passers-by. Frank just watches him for a while, makes sure he's not about to freak out like he did once or twice already, before turning off the ignition key. Come on. We're in Hell's Kitchen. He sniffs the air carefully, looks ridiculously like a dog while doing it. The same way he did with his head tilts. Frank just grunts in response. Of course, of all the things to remember, Red would recall what Hell's Kitchen smells like. They use the fire escape. Frank catches Murdoch's misstep a whole lot more than the redhead would ever be willing to admit, but he lets the man keep his pride. He's dizzy, and his legs won't coordinate with his brain. Right one, mostly. As stubborn as his right arm and hand. He'd raise them barely enough to make a step and trip on the next. Hold himself for dear life on the handrail before Frank came along to take most of his weight, awkwardly squeezing together through the tight fit of the stairs. Red's exhausted by the time they make it to the third flight of stairs, and Frank mostly carries him the rest of the way, Red's legs delaying them rather than helping. It isn't any hardship. Red doesn't eat much, and keeps even less in his stomach when he manages something. Castle isn't sure what he's hoping for when Red finally, gingerly, walks down the stairs to his place, looking more like a stranger than a man walking inside his home. Maybe, stupidly, that he'd walk in, surrounded by all things Matt Murdock, and come to some kind of realization, and get back to his life. Get the hell away from Frank's, because he sure as hell doesn't know what to make of this. Of Red and him in the same space, instead of being on opposite sides in a fight. Or maybe a spark, something that told him Murdock wasn't lost for good. 
Murdoch touches the walls with barely concealed hesitation, knuckles feeling for the polished wood. There were cracks on the walls, broken glass on the floor, a crack on one of the window panes. Frank takes it all in and keeps quiet, clasps his hand in front of him as he shadows Red's footsteps inside the place. Shaky fingertips find the case files over the coffee table. Murdoch's expression twists into something funny. I really am a lawyer, he mumbles, some kind of innocent awe tinging his voice, that Frank thinks he never would have heard otherwise, should he have his memory straight. That you are. Murdoch's lips twitch and that confused, unsure smile, fingertips trailing the few books by the files. An abandoned open laptop attached to a device of some kind. Braille reader, perhaps. He stops at one of the books, fingers spasm before he traces the cover again. Thurgood Marshall. His eyes bob from the upper corner to the lower one, his knees still shake from the hesitation of climbing up the fire escape. I used to read this one a lot when I was a kid. Frank's eyebrows go up. There's something that keeps pulling Red back to the book, even when he feels for the other ones. Frank wonders what it is that makes him gravitate back. A memory. A feeling. What gets him tracing the same dots over and over again on the spine. Take it. Frank shrugs, lets his clasped hands fall by his side. It's yours. Should probably get some of Red's stuff, too, while they're at it. He steps towards the bedroom. He peeks by the sliding door. Looks for something they can use. Gym bag isn't big enough for a lot, but enough. He empties one, leaves one of the rolls of hand tape. Murdoch looks grateful when he reaches gingerly towards the bag, dropping the book inside with a small smile. Frank resists the urge to tell him to quit it. He finds his cane next, discarded by the couch. Confusion and recognition battle around the creases and soft planes of his features before he carefully attempts picking it up. Fingers digging into the back of the couch so he doesn't topple over. Folds it up, almost on muscle memory, and seems about as surprised as Frank as he does it. Remember anything? He asks, strangely hopeful. But Red just frowns, sniffs the air like a hound dog. I'm not... sure. Yeah, he doesn't look very sure about anything, even as he drops the folded cane inside the bag. He walks into the kitchen with a sway to his step that Frank has come to recognize as exhaustion. Confirms it when Murdoch's quick to try and find support on the counter, hands bumping into something. Frank catches a blur of dark red and golden yellow before it falls. Red falls into a series of bird-like head tilts, eyes attempting to find the little red box on the floor. Knows it's a bad idea, trying to pick it up without support, moments before the kid almost cracks his head open a second time. Jesus fuck, Red! He pulls him up before he manages to faceplant like the asshole he was. Pissed off, but still mindful of his sutured-up head, he takes the box himself with a curse, recognizing the smooth, vanillic surface of gift wrap before he hands it to Murdoch. Thanks. His eyes get drawn to the floor again, though. Notices the slump of clothes on the floor by the fridge, some of them with pink splatters of washed-out blood, some with bigger stains. Frank crouches beside it. It had been wet at some point, dried up all wrinkled and smelled moldy to a degree. Suit jacket, slacks, socks, white button-up and a torn black tie. Hudson, Murdoch suddenly murmurs, one eyebrow quirking up as the other draws down crookedly. It's what I could smell before. His hands still fumble around with the gift box, even while slanting his head this way and that, 
sniffing the air as if looking for clues. Frank stands up, leaves the rumpled clothes where they are. Something had happened between the prison rioting, Murdoch becoming a wanted man, and Frank receiving a phone call. Like the book, Red's attention keeps gravitating back to the small box in his hands, wrapped up with a ridiculous primness, contrasting badly with the skewered, badly tied-up golden bow. He keeps tracing the line where the lid met the box, encased by glossy, bright red paper. I... this is weird. Frank grunts, waits for him to say what he's got to say. I know this is all mine. I know it is, but I don't... I don't feel it. I don't remember it. I don't... <sighs> he huffs in frustration, voice edged higher before it falls, holds the box closer to his chest. Frank eyes it, gazes back to the forgotten tag on the counter. It must have fallen at some point. Frank takes another look at Red then, the disgruntled, hopeless expression on his face, exhales in a large huff of air. Look, Red, this is gonna take time, yeah? You went through some bad shit. You gotta let your wounds heal. Let that head of yours heal. Except what the kid needs is a fucking neurologist and shit, a really fucking good therapist too. And Frank would be willing to give that to him, if only he wasn't sure it would end terribly for Daredevil, and worse still for Matt Murdock, to show up now. Murdock suddenly stands straight, that fighter's posture Frank had been used to seeing less flawless than it takes over the slumped, hopeless figure of seconds before. What? Shh! He looks a bit more like the devil Frank recalled, a lot less like the helpless kid he's been around the last few days. Frank can't say he didn't miss it. Footsteps, Murdoch whispers, mouth close to his cheek. Coming up the stairs. Six, maybe seven, they... Frank pulls the gun from the holster, one hand clamping around Red's upper arm to pull him back. His eyes go wide in panic, seconds before he suddenly shouts out, Frank! Down! Bruise. Here is your space. Lie down or stand or sit. It will take your shape. Be still if you can. Look into yourself for what is soft and spoiled. For pulp. For that dark damage. In a second, Red's apartment becomes a battlefield. It'd been easy once to tell Maria that home was here. With the kids. With her. But Frank knows himself better these days. Knows how easily he falls into the gunfire. How squeezing the trigger feels more natural than making breakfast for them once did. How landing a punch is easier than landing a caress and how he'd been so selfish to think he could have both. He has three rounds of ammo on him, 36 bullets for his forty-five caliber, one army knife, a TBI patient with no self-preservation instinct whatsoever, and at least seven guys coming up the stairs to apartment 6A, armed with assault rifles, and a whole lot more ammunition. He takes one second to feel for Red's skinny frame, covering his body after tackling him to the floor his unarmored body and the crisscross sutures over his ear before he makes a decision, grabs the kid by the back of his neck, dragging him off before shoving him backwards under the stairs as soon as bullets puncture through the wall a second time. Red, probably completely oblivious as to where the urge to fight comes from, immediately tries to jump out. Frank presses his forearm against him, looks deep into his unseeing eyes before checking his cartridge. Fully loaded, all twelve bullets in, before turning to Murdoch once again. You stay under those stairs. You don't make a sound. You don't move until I say so. Do you get that? Got no time to make sure the kid understands besides a brief stare, easing up the pressure on his chest incrementally before standing up, 
walking low to hide behind the hallway wall. He's just got to crouching, when a shotgun blow makes debris and chunks of drywall fly past the place his head had been, seconds before. Frank presses his gun close to his chest, stays crouched low as he waits, tonguing his parched upper lip before checking in on Red, hands covering his ears from the close-range blasts. His breathing is too quick, but Frank's got no time to check for anything else but immediate injuries. He roars out for the pieces of shit waiting on the other side of the door. Come on! The spray of bullets starts again, exploding through the door and denting the walls by the fridge, shattering porcelain mugs and plates long forgotten by the sink. He counts the time, the bullets he can hear, keeps half an eye on Red curled up tight under the stairs, eyes panicked. The second the gunfire stops, Frank's on his feet. Two burst through the door and get shot on sight. Shoulder, head, the blonde guy falls. Chest, the braided woman goes down. A third one appears through the doorway, screaming expletives to the remaining four behind him. Frank recognizes a few operational commands. Mercenaries, probably former military, before he jumps into a roll, avoiding a spray of bullets and unloading three knee-level shots at the guy. One hits home. The gunfire starts again. Frank grabs Red by the arm and pulls him out of hiding, dragging him to the table and shouldering it down to the ground, using it as a shield. It was sturdy, but wouldn't last long. Red's partially catatonic, but Frank had expected that too. Either he was caught in a sensory hell or trapped in a flashback. Or both. Probably both. Red, you listening? A sharp erratic nod. We gotta get to those stairs. You tell me when they're almost out of ammo. Can you do that? Another nod. More focused. More sure. Attaboy. Two stop to reload. Frank lends him his palm, and Red makes a small, objective map points the locations of the four mercs still shooting, the one sitting by the two dead ones with his knee shot to hell, immediately shows him the two as soon as they're on their last bullet. Frank rises up too late to do much damage, but one gets a graze to the thigh, and the other falls back with a shot to their armored vest. They have little tactical advantage besides Red's senses. They'll be trapped if they don't move now, but Red can't dodge bullets when he's still swaying over his feet every time he moves too quickly and Frank can't cover for him at the same time he guides him up the stairs. So he quickly falls into another roll, shoots the second lady with the army jacket, and slams his back against the couch. Bullets fly over his head. You got nowhere to hide, Murdoch! Army jacket lady bellows. Frank's gaze locks on Red's face, and he waits for the signal. The shakiness and pale skin are almost completely hidden by the determined set of his brow. The tense posture he holds himself in. Come out now, and I promise I'll make it quick, sweetie. Murdoch raises three fingers. One goes down. Another. Now! He rises the moment burly bald guy on the back stops to reload and shoots him once in the head. Pulls Red to his feet and drag him up the stairs as quickly as he can without risking his goddamn head. Frank, duck! He goes low, brings Red with him. A spray of bullets dent the wall over their heads, and Frank shoots once, twice, three times, ejects the empty mag, and shoves another in record time before shooting the remaining three, army jacket lady, vest dude, and bullet in the thigh asshole. Gives them enough cover fire to crawl the remaining three steps to the access door and reach the rooftop. Murdoch is weak, stumbles twice before he manages to find his footing again. But as soon as they're high up, Muscle memory and adrenaline seems to get rid of whatever catatonic spell he'd been in, together with whatever remaining self-preservation instinct he had been running on when he stayed hidden under the goddamn stairs. 
Use the ledge. What? But Red, the idiot who had his skull open ten days ago, is already running, using the fire escape only to hang on to it, get momentum enough to jump down to the next building's ledge, balancing precariously before taking hold of the ladder and having it drop down close to the ground with him hanging on to it, finding the alleyway ground with unsteady feet, knees buckling violently when he finally does. Jesus Christ, this asshole. But it's quicker, so Frank does what he says. Almost misses the first jump, but manages to hang on, climbing down the ladder and jumping to the floor the moment a bullet shatters the window over their heads, and another grazes his left arm. Fuck! He ignores the urge to clamp his palm tight over the wound, in favor of tugging Red's almost non-responsive body out of the line of fire. There's a van to the left of the building, one that hadn't been there before. Frank memorizes the plaque seconds before spotting a tall figure waiting inside. He shoots them in the head without hesitation, eyes immediately darting up to the fire escape where Army Jacket Lady was hobbling down from, and the building's front door opening from the inside. Bullet and the thigh dude and vest guy burst out of it. Frank starts firing, and so do they. Red makes a sound of surprise and goes green when Frank shoves him behind his body. There are retching sounds and a splash of liquid against the back of his combat boots, but he's got no time to check on him. Gotta keep on moving, or they'll get them trapped in the alley. Keep moving back, Red! Keep moving back! He shouts at him, and Frank swears the kid's whole body flinches with the volume, before doing as ordered, hands bunching the fabric of Frank's jacket tight and pulling him out of the way when Army Jacket Lady finally finishes coming down the stairs and starts shooting too. When I tell you to run, you start running to the car and you don't fucking stop! You got that? Frank, watch out! They jump to the ground, Frank rolling them both behind a dumpster and keeping Murdoch's head shoved in his chest, right hand protecting his fracture. Fuck's sake! Come out! Now! Frank, not now, Red! He checks his ammo. Only half a mag left. He shoves it back inside the grip with a curse. If you come out now and give us the lawyer, we'll let you go. Just come out. Nice and easy. Frank, I said not fucking now, Red! The other two are out of ammo, you asshole! Frank curses under his breath before looking around for a distraction. Anything. Finds an empty bottle by Red's feet and grabs it. Takes the moment to take a look at Red, the waxy pallor of his skin contrasting harshly against the afternoon light, dried vomit clinging to his shirt, cold sweat plastering his fringe to his forehead. Grab onto me. Can you run? Murdoch swallows thickly, still half disassociating. Nods once and grasps tightly to the back of Frank's jacket again. He looks at him just for a while more, the unguarded eyes blowing wide in adrenaline. It's him and the kid, Frank's hands clenching down on Red's wrists, bringing it to grip at his jacket. Don't fucking let go. I won't. Come out or we start shooting again. Frank nods to the kid and tightens his grip on the gun before standing up and throwing the bottle as far as he can. It gives him barely a second of distraction, but it's enough to jump out of hiding and shoot Army Lady in the gut running with Red towards the two assholes that drop their guns in favor of reaching for knives. Frank shoots the first in the hand before driving a bullet right between the eyes. Thigh Guy goes down with a thump. Red tries to scream out a warning before Vest Guy jumps forward, army knife in hand, lunging towards him. Frank pushes him aside, hears Red find the ground with a whimper, and he can't help the second he turns to check on him. Check on his head. If he fucks up his fucking head again... Veskai manages to nick his forearm in his distraction. Pressing his body weight against him doesn't make much of a difference. He was tall but lean, not much fat to outweigh Frank. 
He gets two bullets in the stomach for the miscalculation. Blood gushes messily into the concrete. A woman somewhere screams. Not his priority. His eyes immediately find Red's horrified ones, gaping mouth and whole face splattered with someone else's blood. Frank freezes, for some goddamn reason. It's just a second. For just a second, he can't move. Army ladies' groans and whimpers barely reach him. Murdoch's quick, gasping breaths somehow do. His blood-stained face. He looks scared. Red. He steps forward, and Murdoch, surprisingly, doesn't attempt pulling away from him, except the hands gripping his forearms and pulling him up. We gotta go. Come on. He should have known. Should have known Fisk would have people watching. After the man at the warehouse. Hello, Frank. Mr. Fisk sends his regards. Same place he found Red, brained and sluggish, mumbling in panicked attempts at conversation, slipping every now and again into pools of blood, most of which wasn't his. Red's still breathing too quickly and has that dazed expression again by the time Frank helps him get inside the car. Clever eyes damp where they work uselessly around the stained dashboard. Frank starts the car. You... you... His breathing goes choppy, panicked. You killed them! Frank turns the car violently into the street and starts getting away. He can hear sirens approaching, takes one look at the passenger seat, feverish bright eyes staring uselessly at the car floor. Panic attack. Shit. He's got no time. No time to deal with this. Red, you gotta take a breath. There were... there were guns. You... you killed them. You killed them! Frank frowns at him. He hadn't seemed scared of the guns back in the cabin, and he had spotted them right away, before he could manage to walk out on his own on those first few days. Scared of getting caught in the gunfire, maybe, or... Triggered. Shit. The warehouse. Should have known. Frank's seen enough trauma to recognize it. He should have fucking known. Should have known about Fisk? About coming back here? About Red? Red, hey, get out of your head. I need you to put a hand on my arm, yeah? Turns right to avoid the red lights. Turns left at the 49th. Put your hand on my arm, Red. Squeeze it as tight as you can. Come on. Takes a while before he tries, but his fingers are trembling too much and he flinches at the touch. Frank swallows down the gravel in his voice, remembering days ago, remembering, Stop! And don't touch me! Tries and turns it softer, less threatening. Hold my arm, Red. He finally does, breathing less baited and shaky. Fat tears finally running down his face. Frank? I know, I know, okay? Just gotta focus on it, Red. Turns right to avoid the sirens he can hear. Gotta find a place to ditch the car. If the police doesn't find it, Fisk will. Focus on holding my arm. What's my jacket's fabric made of? A shaky pause. Trembling fingers run through it. Frank's temporarily distracted, watching them and then watching Red, and the tears on his face washing the blood off and turning it pink where it was still wet, before turning his eyes back to the road. C cotton Cotton polyester blend. Twill. Frank can't help a small amused smile. That's neat, huh? Can you tell colors like that? A sharp breath, an attempt to calm himself down when he shakes too much. I know it's... darker. A thick swallow. Red blinks the tears away. Some still drop down. Retains more heat. Fingers tense further, bunching the fabric and Frank's arm in the hold. He fights a wince with a clench of his teeth. He had a possible hairline fracture on that one three months ago. Still hurts sometimes. He keeps Red talking. 
Can you tell how old? A sniff. Fingers trailing softly across the creases. At least two years. Another sniff. It was kept in the drawer for some time. Frank is reluctantly impressed, eyebrows curving up. Red seems to be dragged back to a particular texture closer to his elbow, running over it again and again with the tips of his fingers. Frank wonders if he realizes he's been flapping the other hand close to his body, between intervals of pressing his bent wrist against his thigh. What can you smell on it? Dried blood. Not just yours. Old coffee. Gunpowder. Gun oil. Soap on the sleeves. Antiseptic and hand sanitizer. Dust. Car exhaust. A curious slant of his head. Dog hair. Really old laundry detergent. Sweat. A splatter of shaving cream by the collar. That can't smell too good. Where are we going? The sudden question throws him slightly off, and Frank takes a moment to check on him, the dried blood flaking on his cheek and neck. Breathing even but quiet. Shallow. He's lax against the seat, not exactly relaxed, but drained. Safe house. Checks the street name before turning left. He wants to avoid Central Park. Too much traffic. In Harlem. Murdoch stops talking after that, whole body slumped from exhaustion, except for the tight hold he has on Frank's jacket sleeve. It only finally loosens when he falls asleep, when Frank's driving through Ninth Avenue, past Manhattan Valley and into central Harlem. Makes a stop by the Harlem River when he can, peruses the car for a napkin or a cloth when Red's nose starts bleeding sluggishly, tilting his rose lips crimson. He opens his eyes then, Frank holding the back of his head and pressing the cloth tight to his nose. It's Frank, Red. You're okay. Where's... Listless hands come up to his shoulders, fumbling around the lapels of his jacket. Where's... Where's... Can't listen to him do this again. Frank checks to see if the blood stopped and breathes out a bit more easily. We're getting you home soon, eh, Red? Don't you worry. Red's asleep again by the time Frank pulls away from the curb and starts driving. The pain pulses in tandem with his heartbeat as soon as Matt shifts awake, throat parched dry and saliva thick in his mouth. There's still the faint yet overpowering taste of sick adhered to the back of his tongue and the roof of his mouth, coated over his lips. Moving proves difficult. His arms hurt where he had used them to hang off the fire escape. Left shoulder is slightly swollen, and there are bruises on his knees and arms from throwing himself and being thrown around. The fracture on his head bloats, larger than life, deafens his right ear and makes him numb from the hips down. It reaches a crescendo and finally tapers off, if only slightly. Matt moves his toes to make sure he still can, then his ankles. Both of them screech in agony. Bad landing. Stick wouldn't be so proud of him if he knew. Morning. He jumps at the voice, a mockery of his own. You did land like a newborn fawn. I suppose you deserve the reminder. Bitterness that has nothing to do with vomiting earlier coats his tongue in the inside of his mouth. He'd usually refuse to answer, but the hammering ache attempting to crush his skull inward makes it so that controlling his own mouth is more taxing than just letting it run as he pleases. Go away, he groans, and the voice fades with the fake heartbeat. He doesn't stay long usually only appears when Matt's exhausted or stressed, when the world on fire is already blurry and indistinguishable and he has nothing tangible to hold on to. He knows hallucinations aren't a good sign, especially after head injuries. He knows he should tell Frank, but... What was that? Speak of the devil. 
He ignores his liquefied muscles in favor of pulling himself up, elbows trembling where they support the weight of the upper half of his body. Moving his legs is too tiring, but Matt drags them to a sitting position anyway. Pinpointing exactly where Frank is isn't difficult, even with his senses flickering as they are. He's a big man, his heart loud and thunderous, even when steady as it always is. Quite recognizable, too. But moving is a bad idea. He almost falls back down when Vertigo hits him. Hey, hey, easy. You move too much. Your nose bled twice already. Pop the stitch on your stomach, too. There's only truth in his pulse when Matthew reads it. But he's had it. He fumbles around uselessly for Frank, the headache progressing fast into a migraine, takes Frank's ribbed, long-sleeved shirt in a fist, and by God, he won't let go. He's getting answers one way or the other. He pulls him close with a jolt, the vertigo mingling with nausea and making him weaker, ignores it as much as he can, breathing right in Frank's face when he finally speaks. Talk! It's more of a growl, but maybe not an effective one. Frank only raises an eyebrow, and the way he easily dodges his other hand betrays him humoring Matt by letting him hold the marine close. He snarls at the thought, digging his fingers deeper into Frank's, but the dizziness must be visible, because Frank carefully wraps a large palms around his wrists and presses him back down to the bed. A real bed. They're not in the cabin. Frank watches him struggle pathetically against the hold, still mildly lethargic and too weak to do anything about it. Murdoch snarls, and Frank crooks an eyebrow up. He likes him better when he's asleep. Nothing to say to you, Red. The vicious tinge to his voice is surprising. Bullshit! You said I was a lawyer. Why would someone send armed mercenaries to hurt a lawyer in broad daylight? Frank lets go of his wrists, takes a step back. The skin is dark red where he had been holding him down. I don't know, Red. Why would they? Clasps his hands together in front of his body, watches him snarl again fighting to get up. The sheer balls of this kid. He can barely balance on his own. You tell me. You piece of- Matt tries standing up, only to almost fall back down to the ground, knees crumpling before he manages a rocky balance, thighs screeching bright hot red agony along the bullet wound. And then Frank's the one holding him up, hands firm but soft on his elbows. And the blow to his pride is clearly the last drop. Let go. Sure, Ed. When you remember how to walk on your own without stumbling around like a baby- a punch to his throat. That would certainly knock Frank out of breath if Red hadn't done it with his uncooperative right arm, or if he wasn't getting progressively paler the more he stayed up. Legs shaking violently under his weight. Frank steps further into his space, forces Red one step back, steps another, chest bumping with Red's, pushing him back towards the bed. Murdoch tries to fight it, the hands holding him up, Frank pushing him back, his own legs threatening to give up. Frank lets him fight and doesn't struggle back only holds him tighter, tighter until he's sure there will be hand-shaped bruises all along his upper arms the next day. Easy, Red. A snarl like that of a wounded animal. He bucks and struggles against the hold again. Frank grips him tighter. You'll hurt yourself. Tell me! Red's eyes burn bright. Frank had never seen him so pissed, at least not in a situation he could look at those eyes. Enough to send another man running for his life, or maybe directly into the flames. You tell me, Red. Shit. The tears again. Frank has to look away for a moment when the first one drops, and Murdoch keeps on struggling. Keeps on refusing to go down. Why won't you tell me? A dry, ragged sob. The strength of his punches decreasing, limbs growing faint. You know why? You know me! Why won't you tell me? He weakens his own grip in return, but doesn't let go. Keeps Red up. 
lets him hit at his chest and arms until all energy leaves him, until he's shaking too much and Frank knows he'll hurt himself if he keeps going. He tucks him closer, buries his face against his chest like he did hours ago, protecting his injured head. Why won't you tell me? He repeats, keeps on going until the words don't make much sense. Only then does Frank talk, lips close to his left ear, cheek pressed tight against his hair. Easy, he rasps, feels the voice crackle in his throat at the tension building up in his neck. I got you. Breathe, Red. Knees finally give. Frank directs him to the bed, and Murdoch is blank, sitting there with eyes a thousand yards away. Nothing left to give. No strength left to fight. When Red sleeps, he doesn't stay that way long. Matt comes to himself with his palms and knuckles hurting. He isn't sure why. His throat hurts as if he was sick, or maybe screaming. Warmth. The clink of metal against glass. Someone's holding it, holding his hands. Calluses lining fingertips and palms. Power hidden under the layer of care and softness. Clink of metal against glass again. Something is pulled out of his right palm. The hand shakes. It hurts. Maybe he makes a sound. He isn't sure. Freezes. He can't make a sound. He can't move. He has to be still and silent. They can't see him. They can't realize he's awake or... or... Wet in Frank's voice. Upset. Why is he upset? It's all right, Red. Red. He is Red. Frank calls him Red, not Matt. It's the color Matt was wearing when Frank met him. You're not there anymore. Can't make a sound. Can't move. They'll see him come back. His ears ring. It hurts. He remembers being dragged. A hook-like knife stabbing deep in his side. He thinks maybe he screams. It hurts. But that's... That's before... Before... What? Before, just before. But it had hurt. He managed to escape, broke through the window and jumped into the water. It hurt. Frank's voice comes back, goes wetter and darker. Angry? No. Sad. Why is Frank sad? I'm safe, Red. I'm not hurt. You ain't there, yeah? Not hurt. Glass shards get pulled out of his hand, piece by piece, falling into the plastic bowl. There's a lot there. Did someone get hurt? I'm not hurt, Red. Just taking care of ya. He can move? Yeah, you can. You're not there. He's not there anymore. He can move. They can't see him. Frank cleans his hands, washes it out in something that stings, and then something soothing. Bandages it with care. There's blood around them somewhere. In the window? Did someone get hurt? Just you, Red. Oh. Eventually, he sleeps again. Red is out for good when Frank finally leaves from his safe house's front door. It's a good 20-minute ride back to Hell's Kitchen, depending on traffic. But Frank needs those clothes he grabbed for Murdoch. Needs to bring his cane, too, while he's at it. But most importantly, see who showed up. If it's the feds, Frank has a good idea as to how Fisk is playing this out. Even with all the precautions he takes, Frank's still on edge once he gets into the car. Sits there with his hand hanging loosely from the steering wheel as he goes through the list in his head. The four kitchen knives he inherited with the place were hidden. The small mirror in the shower safely stowed away. He had taken all the glass shards to the dumpster outside and taped the broken window up with a garbage bag. He'd deal with it when it came to it. From all the mood swings, to the panic attacks, to the incessant crying, Red's flashbacks and emotional loops were the worst to deal with. He'd get stuck, and it was almost impossible to drag him out of it. 
He'd been lucky he had pushed Red away before he'd torn himself to shreds and took a tumble out of the window. A seven-story window, no less. He had been frantic at first, trying to jump outside, run towards some fight he'd most certainly lose. Or maybe the memory of one, mumbling something or other before energy left him in a rush. He shut down, went limp, the hands he used to break the window pane bloody and dripping all over the floor. Frank sighs, jabs the ignition key on and drives off the side of his apartment building. Eyes caught on the broken window, black polyethylene sucking inward and outward according to the airflow. It's late, so Frank isn't surprised when he drives past Murdoch's building and there's only some forgotten yellow tape at the main door. Apparently, the whole building had been evacuated. The shooting hadn't lasted more than ten minutes. The cops arrived just as they left. Yet he heard no news of arrests made, or anything about the shooting. He's quite sure Army Lady and Shot Knee Guy were alive when he left the scene. Frank killed six of them. Blonde Braids, Burley, Thigh, Vest, Driver. Murdoch was a wanted guy. Shootings happened at his apartment. There's evidence he was there. A half-packed bag. Only way they didn't make an arrest. They either finished off Army and Knee, or whoever came was in Fisk's pocket. He drives around the block, makes sure to check all possible sniper nests he can find, and keeps himself as far from surveillance cameras as he can. Once he's sure there was no assholes hanging around, he drives back to Murdoch's and uses the fire escape again. No booby traps by the door or windows. Frank squints through the dark, but doesn't make a move to turn on the lights. The duffel bag is forgotten by the overturned kitchen table, as he remembered. He shoves some clothes together with Red's cane and the book he seemed fond of, takes a look around a second time before finding the black batons hidden under the mattress, and takes them too. Makes a sweep around the bathroom and takes only the bare necessities. Toothbrush, some hypoallergenic soap Red seemed to stock around the place. Hypoallergenic shampoo? Shit. Conditioner, Red? Frank shakes his head in a mixture of disbelief and amusement. Difficult to believe, really, that the guy who kept asking if someone was hurt minutes ago while bleeding from his torn-up hands was the same guy who had expensive shampoo and conditioner. Sparse furniture and silk sheets, fancy organic food, and one old set of dishes. He leaves the conditioner behind, but grabs a fleece blanket, worn and softer than it looked, which was a whole fucking lot, and manages to shove it inside the bag. He's headed to the stairs, he doesn't remember Red's hiding place under them until he catches glossy ruby glinting in his peripheral, laced with gold. The present. One redhead cradled close to his chest and held tight, eyes glimmering with confusion or something else. His eyes stray back to the roof access before Frank sighs, crouches low, and groans at the pain in his knee from his fucked-up landing earlier, and takes the gift box, too. Maybe it'll help. Who knows? Trigger something. Something good, if Frank's lucky. He digs into his jean pocket, fingertips tracing the edge of a crumpled paper. Doesn't need to look at it to remember what he wrote down on it. Gunfire. Handguns. Touch. Without warning. Name. Stupid. But details go blurred sometimes, and Red gets triggered a lot now, if he was all kinds of fucked up before. The hell are you doing, Frank? His voice echoes with distortions around the flat's brickwork. He shakes his head at himself. Gets his hand away from the paper. Had done it on a whim. Thought maybe it helped too, knowing. Naming the triggers so they're less abstract, more tangible. But that's just it. Frank can't help. He can drag Red out of the line of fire. Can drag him out of a bloody warehouse and into the Costa crime family mansion to a clandestine surgery. The rest is either up to Red or out of anyone's control. Gunfire. Touch. 
name. He ditches the car on the way back to East Harlem, walks to one of the criminal shops he knows around the area, and steals another. Black van, similar to the one he's had before. Practical. Drives the rest of the way and doesn't think of the paper crumpled inside his jeans. The gift and the blanket shoved inside the bag. Red's bandaged hands back in the apartment. Murdoch is up and drinking the water Frank left him with some difficulty when he walks inside. The bandages being particularly thick over his knuckles and around his wristbone. He struggles with keeping the glass steady as he tips his head back. Black sutures against red skin glint under the artificial light. He's still not all there, although he acknowledges Frank's presence once he walks close enough. He drops the bag, crouching close to the bed, looking for a reason to believe Red would believe this, at least. That this memory wouldn't become another one of his blank spots. He was disassociating, but not too much, it seemed. He could track Frank in the room, at least. Confirming it, only then does he fish the red wrap box from inside the duffel and hand it over to the kid, careful of his shaking hands. Waits for something, some kind of revelation or recognition. Just something. Proof Red was still there, fighting. Murdoch gasps softly, fingers unsteady when they feel over the glossy paper before holding it close to his chest. There's no revelation or understanding, just some incessant flash of loss, confusion like he knew it was something precious, even if he had no idea why. Frank looks away. Or maybe emptiness is a form of listening. Maybe I am just listening. Poems and excerpts taken from, in order of appearance. Memorabilia, Deborah Tall. Late summer after a panic attack, Ada Limon. Freefall, William Golding. From Salt, David Harsent. From Please Bury Me in This, Allison Bennis White. Trigger Warnings. Gun Violence. There's a graphic scene of a gunfight and gun-related injuries, as well as really graphic violence. Most of it happens during the third part, Bruise. Panic Attacks and Triggers. Matt is dealing with untreated amnesia, PTSD, and other trauma-related symptoms. For now, Matt's mentioned triggers are touch, caused by childhood memories related to sexual assault. Gunshot specifically of a handgun, and a name which is not specified. More triggers will probably show along the story, and more episodes of panic attacks or fear reactions such as freezing. I wanted to depict more realistic reactions to trauma, so it will happen throughout the whole series. Hallucinations. During the first part, Devil, Matt experiences some hallucinations. It will also be a reoccurring theme for some of the works.